Well, we're in a new series uh, today in the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount for the next, I say six weeks, seven weeks, but there might be some, we might expand on some of these a little bit, <laughs> um, so I never hold myself to that, but we're looking at that. Um, but we'll start in Matthew chapter 5, so if you have a, a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn there. And we'll look at those first 12 verses. So just to give you, um, just to set you up, we're, it, this is going to be an overview of the Beatitudes. So I'm not going to delve into each one of them individually today. Who knows, that might change but, uh, next week. But, um, but this will be somewhat of an overview that I think we need to grasp uh, before jumping into the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount over the next, next weeks. So Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 12. I'll read this for us. This is God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words uh, of Jesus that remind us in our hectic world of what you have called us to uh, in the gospel. So give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, uh, and to behold uh, wonderful and glorious things from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am sure uh, most of you are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So I just want to say that the Sermon on the Mount, just in in the beginning here, is not just calling us to live a certain way, meaning that that anyone can can pick up the Sermon on the Mount and pick up these teachings and start to live by them, and that their life will be uh, changed or blessed in some way, shape, or form just because they're they're reading through it. Uh, One example of this would be Gandhi. So when challenged to read the New Testament, Uh, and considered the claims of Christianity, uh, Gandhi actually did just that. He took up that challenge. And in his reading of the New Testament, he found the Sermon on the Mount to be the most compelling. And this is what he said about it. Quote, If I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, Oh yes, I am 
a Christian, end quote. Well, unfortunately, Gandhi's interpretation only saw Jesus as, as a model for living rather than an object of worship. So in other words, it's the Sermon on the Mount without the Jesus of the New Testament. It's, it's liking the teachings of Jesus, but not the divinity of Jesus or the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Because those things communicate our need. And we don't like to be told that we are needy. And so we have, we have to get this right at the very beginning of the sermon, or we'll do the exact same thing. We'll hear these words proclaimed, and then we'll, we'll leave from here and go back home and say, okay, how can I, how can I do this? How can I, how can I you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps, spiritually speaking, and, and do this thing that Jesus is telling me to do? Because what, we, what Jesus is teaching us in, in this sermon, if we don't get this right, this is what Jesus is teaching us in the sermon, is he is teaching us not a way to live. He is teaching us the way to live. And it's the way to live according to these three things. His life, his death, and his resurrection. That's why Gandhi couldn't take those and run with them, because he didn't believe in those things. Because these, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, these are the hinge of the Christian life. No other life. There's no way that you can approach the Scriptures uh, and kind of build this, this other life apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's impossible. There's no way you can do that. So it shows us that this sort of life is not ultimately found in uh, who is in the White House or what policies may change or may not change or what laws uh, might be put in place. Uh, now, this sort of life is based solely in and on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. So the Sermon on the Mount is not just a, is not a list of of, of pithy sayings or, or to be quoted or used as your, as your phone's wallpaper. These words are weighty and are meant to be carried out by those who say they know and follow Jesus. But they're also words written to be understood by the interested hearer. Those who we see in, in the text who stand a bit outside the circle of Jesus' disciples here. And if that's you today, if you're here kind of standing a little bit on the outside and you're looking in to this, to this thing called Christianity uh, and you're sitting here listening to this, I just want you to know this. It's a little bit of a warning. It's a warning to us all, um, but as Christians, I hope we would understand this already. But if you're here just listening on the outside, know that you too will be called to respond to Jesus' words. Not, not called to respond by me. You're not, I'm not going to ask you to come forward or do anything kooky like that. But you're going to have to give some sort of answer to Jesus in this sermon. Because 
Jesus doesn't want you standing outside the circle. He wants you to hear him. He wants you to understand what he's calling you to, and he wants you to follow him. That's what Jesus wants. He wants you to move from from just being a part of the crowd to being his disciple. And so he offers this to us in three ways. I didn't get a chance to put these points into your worship guide come print time, but here's the way in which Jesus offers this to us. Three things. Through a new framework, through a new people, and through a new response. A new framework, a new people, and a new response. So first, a new framework. Verses 1 and 2 may be the most important verses of this series in the Sermon on the Mount. And you might look at those and go, how in the world? But these verses are actually pregnant with so much significance concerning who Jesus is. Because even while the sermon does have, have does cast a strong, a strong vision for how, how the disciple of Jesus is to live, it's first and foremost a Christological statement. That's what the sermon is. It is first and foremost a statement about Jesus, not about you, about Christ. So to skip these two verses would be to skip out on on biblical and theological depth that if that was missing would simply turn the sermon into a legalist fantasy and make it more about you than about Jesus. And we see its significance right away in verse 1. When Matthew, the author, tells us Jesus is in the midst of this crowd of people. He is being hounded by by tons and tons of people every single day. And Jesus, in the midst of the crowd, Matthew says, goes up on the mountain. That's significant. Why does Jesus go up on the mountain? Is Is it simply to create space? Between him and the crowds, we see him do that in Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus actually gets on a boat and sets out into the water a little bit, just to separate him from the crowd a little bit, because he's being being crowded in, in such a way. Is that what's happening here? Or is Jesus going up on the mountain so that he has a better kind of vantage point where he's, he's kind of looking over the people and the sound quality is better as his, as his, as his voice travels uh, down from the mountain to, uh, to the people of God? Is that what's happening here? Well, Matthew, being a Jewish man and obviously writing in this Jewish tradition to a primarily Jewish audience is using this as an opportunity to show the Christological significance of what we are seeing Jesus do here on the mountain. Because Jesus isn't simply getting his classroom ready, but fulfilling the scriptures. Specifically, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. So this ascent of the, up the mountain speaks to divine revelation. It sets Jesus apart as, as more than uh, merely a good teacher who is sitting down with his pupils, but the fulfillment of the scriptures. 
So we learned in our study of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 that the high places were understood in ancient cultures as the location where, where the gods would come down and speak to the people or reveal themselves to, to their followers. And this was true of God's people as well. This is what Israel believed as well about the mountain, about these high places. Just simply do a survey of the Old Testament places where mountain locations are mentioned amongst God's people. Where God spoke to his people and revealed himself. You can think of uh, Mount Ararat, uh, Mount Carmel, Mount Gilead, Mount Moriah, Mount Pisgah, and Mount Zion. All mountains where God came down and spoke to his people. And the most obvious and most important mountain is Mount Sinai, with its main character being Moses. So it was upon Mount Sinai that Moses does something similar to what Jesus is doing here. He, he gathers God's people and teaches God's people God's word. And you see that in Exodus chapter 19 verse, uh, through, through 24. Think about the Ten Commandments. That's where all of that takes place. God coming down and speaking his word to his people through Moses. And then just to compare the two, you see uh, a number of times in the Gospels in the New Testament where uh, Jesus is on a mountain. Whether it's here where he's teaching, where he does that a number of times, uh, whether it be praying on the mountain to his father, or offering healings on the mountain, or, or visions on the mountain with his disciples. So what we see here in this comparison is not that Jesus is just another Moses or that Jesus is just another prophet who's come to be amongst God's people, but that Jesus is actually the greater Moses. So Jesus is presented as the Messiah who fulfills God's ancient and promised purposes. St. Augustine says this in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The mountain points toward the gospel's higher righteousness, higher precepts to a people to whom it is fitting to be set free by love. So Jesus' preaching here in Matthew 5-7 through is demonstrating for us what Jesus says about his own earthly ministry in verse 17, there in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this clearly, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Which is what is happening in these verses. Jesus is not getting rid of the law of Moses that was given to God's people at Sinai. Jesus is fulfilling the law of Moses. He's giving to his people a new framework. Not throwing out the old framework. He's just reframing the law around himself. And as we march through the Sermon on the Mount over the next six weeks, this will begin to make more sense to you. You will begin to see how Jesus reframes the law given to God's people around himself, around the gospel. And by Jesus giving this new framework, 
he is also gathering a new people in verses 3 through 11. Now, I don't know what you think about uh, when you hear the word blessed, um, but a few things that come to my mind when I think about what it means when someone is blessed, I think automatically think financial, wealth, um, having things that I don't have typically is how it works, having a certain amount of power or winning, you know, somebody who is winning, they are blessed. If they are successful, then we assume that they are blessed. Or maybe if you're single, you think those who are married are blessed. Or if you're married, depending on how your marriage is, you might think, man, those people who are single are blessed. I wish I was back in their shoes. Or you look at it as a married person and you're unable to have children and you're looking at those who are married and have children and you go, they're blessed. And I am not. We tend to live in this realm of thinking. All of us do. We tend to live in the realm of thinking that we are not the blessed. But what Jesus says here to his listeners is something completely counter to everything we tend to think of concerning blessing. Listen to the language again of verses 3 through 11. This is Jesus, your Savior, speaking to you. And this is what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are reviled. Blessed are those who have evil uttered against them falsely. Now this is not language we're used to hearing when thinking about being blessed. And the reason why is because this is a language of weakness. As Americans, we're taught to be strong, to work hard, to put your nose to the grind, make straight A's, get the right job, don't be weak, and for goodness sakes, never fail. Avoid any kind of poverty. Avoid any kind of, of, of behavior or lifestyle that makes you needy. Of other people. Satisfy yourself. Or as Tom Haverford would say. Treat yourself. You deserve it. Work hard. Play hard. If someone speaks poorly of you. Revenge. If someone hurts you. You hurt them back. If someone speaks lies against you. Defend yourself. At all costs. But the Beatitudes tell us the complete opposite. Why? Well, because everything that is listed here by Jesus is also answered with Jesus. Because what is offered by Jesus to the world is not some warmed-over version of the culture. 
which sadly is often what we see in churches today, and a lot of those churches are in our city. Jesus says of churches like this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, you have the reputation of being alive. You look alive. You say the right things. Lots of people are coming. But you are dead, Jesus says. Now what Jesus offers us here in these verses is not conformism or another version of the old humanity, meaning you can stay and, you know, this is just an option for you. I'm giving you an option here that you can take or you can just stay in your old humanity if that's making you happy. That's not what Jesus is doing here. This is counterculture. A completely new humanity. And even, even so, in the New Testament, the, the, the language of, of race is used, which today is such a hot, hot word. It says that Jesus is creating a new race of people. And it's a community that is marked by love and nothing else. So looking back again at Moses and his ministry amongst God's people, Jesus' call here is reminiscent of the call that God places on Israel soon after he rescued them from Egypt. So he rescues them, just as Jesus rescues us, and then he says this to them. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you dwelt, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. So don't be like the world to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes, and you shall not walk in the way that they're walking. You shall, not do, you, shall, you shall do my ordinances and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And because God is their God, and because they are uh, God's special people, they were to be different than everybody else, than all the other nations. Set apart, holy. And we need to be reminded of this as the church of Jesus Christ over and over again because just like Israel in the Old Testament, we too keep assimilating ourselves back to the culture around us. I said this last week. We are, we are consumed most of our waking hours by those things that are not godly. That's what, that's what washes over us most of our waking hours. So this is why Sunday is so vital to your spiritual vitality. This is why community is something we so heavily emphasize at Christ the King. Not so that we can just, you know, get together and kumbaya and make ourselves feel better. It's because if we don't, we die. We, 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 we continue to, to, to allow the culture to penetrate our lives, and we're consumed by that. It's happening over and over again. John Stott says in his commentary at this point, who also is the one who coined the phrase uh, that, that the Sermon on the Mount is a countercultural uh, message. But he says this, quote, Thus the followers of Jesus are to be different. Different from both the nominal church and the secular world. 
different from both the religious and the irreligious. And what's laid out in verses 3 through 11 give us this very clear picture of what that looks like. If we seek to live the blessed life that Jesus speaks of here before a watching world, the world will take notice. They will. They'll say something's different there. But more importantly, your heart will be changed in a tremendous way. And we see this in how Jesus calls us to a new response as a new people to his new framework in verse 12. So verse 12 tells us after listing these, you know, seemingly worldly contradictions, verse 12 tells us, Jesus tells us, rejoice and be glad. And this is directly after he changes. I don't know if you saw that there, but he changes in verse 11 from um, from 10 to 11, he, he, he's speaking to the group. And then in verse 11, he, he makes it singular. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he follows that up with verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. That makes no sense. Because I'm sure we might have some of these questions. How can I rejoice and be glad at having a poor spirit? How can I rejoice and be glad in mourning? Because mourning equals death. Something has died. Someone has died. How can I rejoice and be glad in that? How can I rejoice and be glad living for other people? Doesn't this world say to live for myself, that he who dies with the most toys wins? How can I rejoice and be glad in need? How can I rejoice and be glad showing mercy even to those who hate me or to those that I don't particularly like being around? How can I rejoice and be glad when persecuted for my faith? And we don't know much about persecution in America because we're spoiled. But I see brothers and sisters throughout the world who are rejoicing and glad and they're being killed daily for their faith. How can we do that? How can I rejoice and be glad when others spread lies about me? Well, Jesus tells you how. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, because your reward is great in heaven. And Jesus is the one who has won this reward for us. So essentially, Jesus is saying, you can lay down your life in this way because I laid down my life for you first. I became poor in spirit for you. I mourn with you. I I lived for you. I put myself in a position where I hungered and thirsted for my righteousness and was denied it from my heavenly Father at the cross for you. You remember Jesus' words from the cross when when he asked his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have shown you mercy, Jesus says. I have taken on the ultimate persecution. I have taken on all sorts of evil and false accusations were aimed at me for your sake. 
And for these reasons alone, your reward is great in heaven. And that is enough to completely give your life over to Christ. There is no one in this world, and there's no one else in this world who has done that for you. I don't care how much you love your mom or your dad. I don't care how spiritual they were or, or how, 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 how much your, your husband or wife cares for you or how much your friends care for you, whomever, or, or whatever you may have or whatever is making you happy at this moment. No one or nothing has ever done what Jesus has done for you. So the invitation to Jesus' listeners, which is all of us here, is that they must determine their values from the perspective of eternity. They must believe Paul's words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. When Paul says this, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. They're going away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Your reward is great in heaven. And so what the Beatitudes do is they cast a vision that includes an implicit invitation to all of those listening. This is what the martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, who was killed by the Nazis for his faith. With every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people. And their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. But Jesus is inviting you to a whole new category of living. How will you respond to that? Let's pray. Father, thank you that the invitation that you give to us is not empty. That it's an, an invitation that is full of grace, that is full of mercy, that is only found in Jesus. It is, it is not found in the emptiness of this world. It is not found in um, the people around us. It is only found in Jesus, who says that he comes not only to give us life, but to give us abundant life. Nothing else in all the world, no one else in all the world says that to us or can give that to us except Jesus. So I pray that we would know that today. I pray that we would choose Christ today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.